Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the colonisation of Australia. We're going to talk about the events that took place which resulted in Australia going from a land inhabited by hundreds of tribes of Indigenous people to the English-speaking majority white nation that it is today. And the reason that we're talking about that uh, this, this week is that uh, in a couple of days, on the 26th of January, millions of Australians will celebrate Australia Day. Uh, this is the date that it's said to mark the arrival of the First Fleet, ships filled with convicts, in Australia in 1788, and, uh, and the establishment of the colony of New South Wales. Now, quite aside from the fact that neither of those things happened on the 26th of January, um, there are other much better reasons not to celebrate this day, and I will be joining the millions of Australians who do not celebrate a day known amongst Indigenous Australians as Invasion Day, not Australia Day. I'm proud to be Australian. I think that it is the greatest nation on earth. I am lucky to have been born here and to be able to enjoy the prosperity and the safety and and the lifestyle that comes with being an Australian. But I recognise and am deeply ashamed of a side of Australian history that far too many other Australians like me are all too willing to ignore. Much of the history of Australia is written in blood in the blood of Indigenous Australians who had lived here for tens of thousands of years before my ancestors came along. And I know that the prosperity and everything else I enjoy today is a direct result of the colonisation of Australia. And perhaps some will think me hypocritical for enjoying my life here in Australia as the result of colonialism while still spouting off about how much I condemn colonialism. And look, you might even have a point in saying that. But I will at least acknowledge the role that white Australia has played in the invasion of this continent and in the murder of its people. And I won't accept the idea that it is, as so many people seem to think, all in the past. And I don't apologise for the tone of this episode either. I know that many listeners tune in each week looking for a light and frothy look at something silly from history. And usually I'm more than happy to provide that. Much of the time, that's what this show is. But I am sickened by the willful ignorance of many of my fellow Australians, and in some small way with this Tin Pot podcast, I want people to change their thinking. Occasionally, I'll get emails complaining about how my woke lefty politics ruin the podcast, how I, how I don't have to inject politics into everything, how I should just stick to history and not get all political. But here's something to consider, mate. History is politics, just with a couple of extra hundred years thrown in. All the kings and wars and everything else that we've talked about over the last 230-something episodes, it's all politics. Today, we're going to talk about how Australia was claimed and colonised by the British and how convicts were sent over to start the settlement process. We'll talk about how the colonies were established and how they developed to ultimately become the states that Australia still has today. But most importantly, we will talk about how this colonisation process impacted and still impacts Indigenous Australians and how it left countless thousands of them dead at the hands of colonists and settlers and why 
For Indigenous Australia, the 26th of January is not a day to celebrate. As ever, we have a lot to get across, so let's get to it here. We're going to discuss the colonisation of Australia, and we're going to leave all the nasty bits in. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to around 50 or 60,000 years ago. It's not often that we head this far back in history, but to get the full picture of the history of Australia, you have to go back tens and tens of thousands of years to when the first humans arrived on the continent. It's thought that these people arrived by sea through Southeast Asia during a period when sea levels were much lower. There are a lot of other competing theories. Um, We don't know for certain how the first Australians arrived in, in Australia, but however they got there, they got there. And, uh, and there is evidence of human settlement in Australia that goes back to, as I say, 50 or 60,000 years, maybe even 65,000 years up in Arnhem Land in what is today the Northern Territory. Humans spread throughout the entire continent, even across to Tasmania before it was thankfully separated from the continent by the sea. You'd have to question the judgment of those particular people when all that, all, all, all the way down to Tasmania. But broadly speaking, these people across the continent, Indigenous Australians, also known as Aboriginals, they lived in Australia for tens of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers, developing tools to facilitate hunting and fishing and travel. And in hundreds of various groups across Australia, they developed rich cultures of art and song and storytelling and dance and so much more across around 250 different language groups. And today, the descendants of the people who lived in Australia, in these, in these tribes, in these clans, in these nations, um, they're, descendants, they're still around today. They're Indigenous Australians that live in Australia. And through them, in the 21st century now, Australia is home to the oldest continuing cultures in the entire world. It's estimated that at its peak, Australia, the continent, was home to one million concurrent Indigenous inhabitants uh, during this this pre-colonial period, a period that, as I say, spanned tens of thousands of years. And the reason I'm harping on about this is because I want to make something very clear. Australia was inhabited. People lived here. People called this land their home. And there is a good reason that I am banging on about this, which we will come to soon enough. But for now, we're going to wind forward the clock to this millennium, to uh, more, more specifically the 17th century to 1606 and talk about the first confirmed European landing in Australia. Uh, before this, other peoples and other cultures had landed in Australia. Um, around 4,000 years ago, uh, some visitors arrived and brought their dogs with them. Uh, we don't know who these visitors were, but they left some of these dogs behind, which went on to become dingoes, the, uh, the native, nat- another native species of Australia. Um, and, uh, and similarly, Polynesians may have visited around 1,600 years ago and introduced their fish hook making technology to Indigenous Australians. So the, the Indigenous Australians had had regional visitors uh, in the past, but none of these visitors would so thoroughly and irreversibly alter the lives of Indigenous Australians who, as I've said, I'll say it again, had lived in Australia for tens of thousands of years. Anyway, back to 1606, you might have heard of the British sea captain James Cook, who is often uh, often credited with the discovery of Australia, and this is incorrect for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, you can't discover something that people already know about. Australia had been discovered by humans 60,000 years ago, so definitely didn't count when James Cook arrived. It's kind of like saying that Neil Armstrong discovered the moon just because he was the first to set foot on it. A difficult claim to actually justify. But secondly, and more importantly, 
even if you substitute the word discovered for something like uh, explored or, or navigated or charted, uh, Cook still wasn't the first, not even close. We're off by over a century and a half. No, the first confirmed European landing in Australia, the first European to visit and explore Australia, was actually a Dutch bloke whose name was Willem Janszoon. He arrived in 1606. He landed in far north Queensland, near what is today the town of Weeper. Uh, and then went on to chart much of the northern coastline. However, Yanzone didn't think much of the land that he surveyed. It was hot, it was humid and marshy and swampy, uh, and he therefore went back and did not recommend its colonisation. He also got something fundamentally wrong about Australia. He thought it was just a southern extension of the island of New Guinea. He never realised that it was its own continent and could be circumnavigated as it would be in the years to come. Uh, he thought that it was just an extension of the Dutch East Indies um, and never properly charted the entire northern coast to realise that it wasn't connected to, uh, to New Guinea. Um, anyway, the Dutch continued to explore the northern coast of Australia in the early 1600s uh, and then the western coast and a bit of Tasmania, or Van Diemen's Land as it was called. And this happened throughout the mid-1600s. And by 1648, the Dutch had a reasonable idea of what the northern, western and southern coasts looked like. And Dutch influence in this region was strong enough for Australia to be known initially as New Holland. But again, the Dutch weren't all that interested in colonising the continent, uh, not because they thought it was the wrong thing to do, as you know, many right-thinking people would today, but uh, because in the words of the Dutch East India Company, <clears throat> there is no prospect of use or benefit to the company in it, but rather very certain and heavy costs, which wasn't as unreasonable as it sounds based on the areas that the Dutch explored. Uh, much of the coastline that they charted was either dominated by swamp and rainforest or, alternatively, arid, inhospitable desert. And on top of that, the Dutch encounters with Indigenous Australians hadn't gone particularly smoothly either. All the way back to Janszoon's Landing, Indigenous Australians hadn't been hugely welcoming. Deadly fights had broken, uh, broken out between Indigenous Australians and visiting Europeans. So broadly speaking, the Dutch left Australia alone. No attempts were made to colonise the continent until well into the, seven, into the 18th century, I should say. And this is where Captain Cook comes in. After being sent to the South Pacific to observe, uh, observe the transit of Venus in 1769, Cook was then ordered to search the Southern Hemisphere for a fabled Southern Continent. Now, he didn't find it. They were looking for Antarctica, and the first confirmed sighting of Antarctica would come in 1820. Before that, it was just hypothesised. They thought it must exist, but didn't have any proof. Turns out it did. They were right about it, but wouldn't be discovered for, for decades and decades. And instead of finding Antarctica... Cook found the east coast of Australia in August 1770. He sailed up the east coast in his ship, the HMS Endeavour. Uh, he took a break on the 29th of August to land in Botany Bay, which is uh, near central Sydney these days, a little, little bit south of Sydney. Uh, it's the bay that you, if you've ever flown into Sydney, it's the bay that you fly over as you land in the airport. Um, and after landing in Botany Bay, there was more conflict with Indigenous Australians. Cook himself shot and injured two men from the Guiagal tribe. Uh, and this, I have to say, was a very grim augury of what was to come for Indigenous Australians across the continent with the arrival of the British. The British had arrived and Australia would never be the same. Cook continued up the coast from Botany Bay uh, using his exceptional skill as a navigator to chart out the eastern coastline before finally claiming possession of the eastern part of Australia for Britain. And this claim was, in the opinion of many, myself included, completely illegitimate, based on illegitimate justifications that were, unfortunately, readily accepted back then in the so-called Age of Discovery. 
There was no dispute amongst European powers that they could go around and claim land for themselves if no other European power had already claimed it, if it, if it was inhabited by people without permanent settlements or agriculture, without formal government or political organisation. Cook's claim was a product of the times. Indigenous Australians, despite having lived in Australia for tens of thousands of years, they weren't considered by Europeans to actually have any real claim to or ownership of the land that they lived on. So this is why I'm attempting to really hammer down the point that Australians, Indigenous Australians, had lived on this continent for tens of thousands of years and then a bloke in a white powdered wig turns up and says, well, no, sorry, mate, this is not your land, it's now our land. There's an old gag from comedian Eddie Izzard that sums it up depressingly, succinctly. Do you have a flag? Sorry, no flag, no country. And as unjust as this perspective was, the fact that Europeans held it mattered because it was the Europeans with the guns and the ships and all the other things that you need to project real hard political power across the world. You can argue about the legitimacy of something until you're blue in the face, but when someone can force their will on you, illegitimate or not, and when they can force their will on you with the wrong, with the wrong end of a firearm, it, it doesn't really matter. And this is the political atmosphere that underpinned the colonisation of Australia by the British. After Cook returned to Britain, it was the botanist that he had brought along with him, Sir Joseph Banks, who was a driving force behind Britain establishing a colony in Australia. Banks was a strong proponent of the colonisation of Australia, having seen it with his own eyes, having seen the, the, the economic opportunity that the East Coast presented. Unlike the North Coast, filled with humid tropical rainforest, or the West and South Coasts, dry and inhospitable deserts, the East Coast presented an opportunity to exploit arable farmland. And it was this prospect in conjunction with a, uh, an increasingly disruptive domestic issue that the British were dealing with um, that, that prompted a, a very real and earnest discussion about sending off settlers and, and colonists to Australia. The issue that the, Britain, that the British were facing at home was uh, they didn't know what to do about their increasingly overstuffed prisons. And you, you probably know, I mean, it's no secret, Australia was founded as a penal colony and Tens of thousands of convicts were, were shipped over here. Um, but it's interesting because as an Australian, I've always been made fun of countless times for coming from a country of criminals. Usually, you know, it's Americans who are having a go at me for this. And look, I don't, I don't mind. It's, it's largely true for many reasons. Uh, plenty of convicted criminals were sent over to Australia. That's, again, what founded most of the colonies. The people doing the sending of the criminals were themselves criminals as they, you know, as you should largely consider the colonisation of Australia to be illegal. Um, and then also, you know, when they make fun of me personally, I can't really argue because one of my ancestors literally stole sheep in the British Midlands and was transported for it. So I don't really mind people making fun of me or for, or for Australia for our criminal history, but I do find it interesting that the British shipped around 50,000 convicts to the Americas before they sent any to Australia but the US has somehow avoided the stereotype of being a nation of criminals. Australia was a penal colony, I'm not denying it, but Americans are often very quick to overlook their history of convict transportation at the hands of the British when making fun of Australians for it. Uh, but then again, I guess based on what the rest of the world makes fun of Americans for, maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll just take the convict thing and that's fine. Anyway, um, it's at least in part 
because of what had happened in the British colonies in the Americas, uh, actually, that uh, the colonisation of Australia was catalyzed. Uh, because, of course, the British lost the American Revolutionary War, USA number one, um, and they didn't have anywhere to send their criminals once the US became independent. And for a while, this meant that the British stuffed these poor convicts into overcrowded prisons and then into prison hulks, which were great big ships that sat in harbour, absolutely appalling, squalid conditions, completely inhumane. And so the idea of establishing a self-sufficient penal colony in Australia was put forward with banks suggesting Botany Bay as a very good spot for it. The idea was to send a bunch of convicts over there, have them set up farms and plantations and become self-sufficient and eventually make money for the British by exporting things, sugar, cotton, tobacco, whatever else, and end up not just being self-sufficient, but profitable for the empire. And so in this way, the British would kill two birds with one stone. They would deal with the overcrowded prison situation and, all going well, expand their colonial influence and economic power by establishing profitable settlements on the other side of the world. The Dutch and the Spanish had strong presences in, in Southeast Asia and, and, and Oceania, and the British wanted to establish themselves in that area as well. And so the British expanded the claim that Cook had made uh, to the east coast of Australia. They expanded to extend westwards to the meridian of 135 degrees east. And you might be thinking, well, that's very specific. Why there? Well, interestingly, because that is the line of division set out between the Portuguese and the Spanish in the Treaty of Tordesillas from 1494. We've talked about this treaty in both episodes 106 and 227, get across them. Very interesting how these things crop up throughout history, despite this division in Australia's case being you know, between the British and the Dutch rather than the Portuguese and the Spanish, but still very interesting to see the Treaty of Tordesillas come back. Anyway, plan to colonise Australia with a penal settlement in Botany Bay was approved, it was drawn up, and then it was undertaken by the British, which brings us to the First Fleet, the reason that Australia Day is being observed this week. Australia Day is... Um, Look, you know, I hesitate to, to use the word celebrated. I do, because many of us don't celebrate it. I, I don't know what word to best describe it. I said observed before, but even that gives us a, gives it a sense of legitimacy that it, it, it really doesn't deserve. Um, so how about this? A, a factual statement. Today, Australia Day happens on the 26th of January every year. It's a public holiday and a range of official events take place. Um, but it is rife with problems. It is a celebration of Australia's disgraceful history of colonisation and imperialism and the, the, the illegitimate invasion of a sovereign land inhabited by people. And it's also just a really weird date to pick. Um, ask most Australians and they'll, they'll say something like, oh, the 26th, that's the date that the first fleet arrived and landed in Australia. But that's not true. Um, it makes the fixation that people have with celebrating on this date even weirder than it already is. And others might say, oh, it's the date that the, the, the first colony, New South Wales, was pronounced. And that also isn't true. The 26th is actually kind of arbitrary. We'll, um, we'll get to that. Let's talk about what actually happened with the first fleet. On the 13th of May, 1787, 11 ships with 1,420 people aboard them set off from Portsmouth in Britain and sailed for eight months to arrive in Australia under the command of Captain Arthur Phillip. Of those uh, 1,420 people, over half of them were convicts. The rest were crew members and marines. Some, some marines also brought, brought their wives. And there were a handful of officials and, and a couple of passengers as well. They sailed for 252 days, and then the fleet arrived in Botany Bay on the 
No, not the 26th of Australia, as, I, as I'm sure many Australians think. No, they landed on the 18th of January, which is not a date that is celebrated here in Australia by anyone. Well, actually, no, I was going to say by anyone, but no, that's not true. Um, former Prime Minister Paul Keating probably celebrates the 18th of January every year because, you know, it's his birthday. But you, you get my point. Every year, the debate about Australia Day flares up and it rages on between the flag-waving, whitewashing, quasi-racists and the bleeding-heart, tofu-eating wokerati. Indigenous Australians often refer to Australia Day as Invasion Day, as I said, and um, this celebration is little more than a yearly reminder of the colonial seizure of land that had been inhabited for tens of thousands of years by their forebears. And there's a growing movement to abolish Australia Day, to change the date, to find something else, anything else to celebrate. But many Australians point blank refuse to even consider it. These flag-shagging traditionalists bang on and on about protecting our history, the importance of days like the 26th of January, the, the day the first fleet landed in Australia. But they just didn't, mate. Like, I don't know what to tell you. They didn't land on the 26th. They landed on the 18th. So insisting that we have to celebrate this sacred date, the 26th, it's, it doesn't really make all that much sense. I mean, obviously, I, I think that Australia Day shouldn't be celebrated and principally because of what it means to Indigenous Australians. That is certainly the main reason. But quite aside from the fact that a lot of Indigenous Australians view the First Fleet as an invasion fleet, and rightly so, they didn't land in Australia on the 26th. All the weirdos who were so married to the 26th of January who will oppose changing the date of our national holiday with their dying breath. I mean, all their talk about the importance of history and all the rest of it, it falls pretty flat when we remind ourselves that they didn't land here on the 26th. The 26th is when they moved from Botany Bay to Port Jackson in today's Sydney. The actual date of the 26th is... It's arbitrary as hell, and considering the harm and the distress that it causes the original inhabitants of this land, the land that we live on, stolen land from inhabitants who never ceded sovereignty, this needless harm that is regularly caused to people who have done nothing but suffer at the hands of European Australians like me, considering all of that, I really don't understand the weird fixation with Australia Day being on the 26th, or in the first place celebrating the colonial settlement of Australia. There are so many other dates that we could pick. The 9th of May, for instance, to commemorate the opening of the first Australian Parliament in 1901. Or, better yet, the 16th of February, when Stephen Bradbury won the first Aussie gold at the Winter Olympics in 2002 after being in last place when all the other speed skaters that he was racing against crashed out. He won. What a legend. What a moment in Australian history. And we could celebrate that. But instead... It's the 26th of January, not the day that the first fleet landed in Australia, but when they moved from Botany Bay to Port Jackson. But why, but why did they move, you might wonder, and, and, and it's a good question. Um, after arriving in Botany Bay, Philip and, and the rest of the colonists, they realised that, that jo Sir Joseph Banks had, had actually been wrong about Botany Bay's suitability as a spot uh, for a settlement. The bay was too open, it was too shallow, the ships couldn't come close enough to shore, there wasn't much in the way of fresh water, the soil was bad, and the trees were so strong that the convicts couldn't cut them down with axes. The axes actually broke before the trees did, and so instead they had to use gunpowder to fell these trees. And so realising this wasn't the best spot for a new settlement, um, Philip, he sent out scouts in little boats uh, to, to look for a more suitable location. And they didn't have to go very far. They returned before long with tales of a large protected bay, nice and deep, 
plenty of fresh water, good soil. And Philip heard about this and he thought, well, that sounds great. He ordered everyone back, uh, back aboard the ships, packed everything up and traveled 12 kilometers north to settle in Port Jackson instead. And today, that is where you will find the city of Sydney. The Sydney Harbour Bridge spans Port Jackson. The Sydney Opera House is built out into its waters. And so at this point, you might think, well, okay, fair enough. This was the 26th of January. It's when they moved, set up the first settlement, first penal colony in Australia. Uh, it's when the colony was formally proclaimed after the first fleet moved to Port Jackson. An important day worth commemorating, no, not at all, because the colony wasn't officially proclaimed until the 9th of February, with Philip now as its governor. So why aren't we celebrating the 9th of February instead? All of these arguments that the 26th of January purists put out about the 26th being sacred, order, they break down pretty quickly, even after the smallest amount of scrutiny. Anyway, the colony of New South Wales, uh, as it was known, it had, it had a bloody hard time of it in the first couple of years after being established in, in one of the coves within uh, Port Jackson named Sydney Cove. That's where uh, Sydney gets its name. Um, uh, agriculture hardly flourished. Supplies weren't plentiful. Convicts were disorderly. Generally speaking, life was very hard for the convicts and their keepers. Things got a bit easier after the arrival of the Second Fleet in 1790, who brought fresh supplies, new convicts. However, most of these convicts were in very ba bad health. They were unfit for work, uh, as was the case indeed the next year with the Third Fleet in, uh, in 1791. But the colony limped on. It expanded westward in, in search of better farmland into an area known as, as Parramatta. And uh, slowly but surely, things turned around. And by the time Governor Philip left in 1792, things were looking a lot better for the fledgling colony in New South Wales. Much of the population weren't convicts by that stage. There were emancipated conflicts. There were soldiers who had completed their term of work and had decided to remain behind. Uh, children that had been born to convicts who were growing up. And, and there were new voluntary free settlers who, who had travelled from Britain. After Philip left, in order to accommodate for the growth of the settlement at Port Jackson, generous land grants were handed out to settlers, both free and emancipated alike, meaning that some former convicts, having been freed, went on to become very, very wealthy landowners. Uh, of course, the British giving away land that they didn't really own was very generous of them, as you might expect. The Indigenous Australians weren't too happy about it. They were displaced from land that they and their ancestors had inhabited for millennia, but we will talk in more detail about that a little bit later on. For now, I want to tell you about how European settlements within Australia expanded beyond Port Jackson and Parramatta, um, how colonies other than New South Wales were established. Until around 1820, colonial Australia was restricted to areas within around 100 kilometres of Sydney and a small part of Van Diemen's land. Um, the, the, the colonial efforts in, in Australia became self-sufficient in 1803. Colonists augmented their farms with the exploitation of marine resources. Sydney became an important port town, a place where ships on long-distance voyages could be repaired and resupplied. And more, more than anything else, uh, the efforts that, that the British were making to colonise this part of the world helped to entrench British influence in the region. The colony grew steadily. It had its fair share of issues, however, in, uh, I mean, you can hear about one of them in, in episode 179, the Rum Rebellion, get across that. But in 1810, things changed pretty significantly when a bloke named Lachlan Macquarie was appointed governor of New South Wales. He was a very important figure in the town's development and therefore 
the development of colonial Australia more broadly. Macquarie transformed Sydney from a penal colony into a fully-fledged settlement. He laid out streets, built roads, established a bank and a hospital. He developed the waterfront and parceled out ever more land for agriculture for these settlers, whether they were free or emancipated convicts, to to settle down on and, and cultivate with agriculture. Um, And he also began a policy of treating emancipated convicts as equals with free settlers, which helped to encourage the growth and prosperity of the colony by giving people a fair go. And by the time we get to when Macquarie resigned as, as governor in 1821, the land surrounding Sydney was so valuable that squatters established unauthorised cattle and sheep farms without the consent of the colonial government, carrying on the proud traditions of the British, you would think, taking land without asking. But the stories of the wealth on offer in colonial Australia spread. And even with a new surge of convicts after the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815, free settlers also arrived in New South Wales by the literal boatload. And in 1820, It had a population of over 26,000 people. And 10 years later, even with another 55,000 convicts being transported to New South Wales, free settlers and settlers born in Australia outnumbered convicts in the colony. So there was a lot of movement of people from Europe, from Britain, from England, from Ireland and Wales and Scotland over to Australia, to these colonies, to seek their fortune and attempt to start a new life for themselves on the other side of the world. But it wasn't just New South Wales. Uh, New South Wales was the first colony in Australia. And if you look at some old maps of colonial Australia, you'll see that it occupied a lot more land than it does today, the state of New South Wales. Other settlements and colonies began to spring up and ultimately broke away from New South Wales to establish new colonies and then in time became states in their own right once Australia federated in 1901. And they are the six states that Australia still has even today to this day. Firstly, Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, as it's known today. In 1803, New South Wales Governor Philip Gidley King sent an expedition to Van Diemen's Land to establish settlements there. The French had been poking their nose around the island and the British wanted to steal a march on them and make sure that they settled the island before the French could get there. And so Hobart was settled in the south, the town of Hobart, and Launceston in the north. Convicts were sent to Van Diemen's Land in droves. And in the 1820s, once again, massive parcels of land were given out to free settlers that arrived and some to emancipated conflicts, although the majority of convicts emancipated or otherwise otherwise went without in uh, in Van Diemen's Land. Um, In 1825, Van Diemen's Land was officially separated from New South Wales as its own colony, and it did pretty well for itself with sheep and crop farming as well as whaling. It was a very prosperous place. Uh, And then eventually in 1856, three years after convicts stopped being sent to to Van Diemen's Land, it changed its name to Tasmania, and it's been known as Tasmania ever since. And the successful colonisation of Van Diemen's Land also led to the colonisation of what is now Victoria, my home state, and the establishment of the city of Melbourne, my home city. People seeking new farming land travelled from Van Diemen's Land. They left the island, went back to the continent, to the area around Port Phillip. Uh, a huge bay on which Melbourne would go on to be built. Uh, And there they became squatters. They settled there without permission from the British. In 1835, a bloke whose name was John Batman, or John Batman, it's properly said, but there are plenty of places in Melbourne named after this bloke, and it's very odd to go down a street and see Batman Park written on uh, on an official sign. Anyway, this bloke, Batman, um, you might remember him actually from episode, uh, episode 51, William Buckley, get across it. 
He negotiated the transfer of 100,000 acres of land from the Indigenous people who lived around Port Phillip uh, in what would have been the only colonial treaty signed between the British and Indigenous Australians. Unfortunately, the British annulled the treaty. They declared that all unsettled land in the British-claimed area of Australia belonged to the Crown, meaning that they didn't accept even the concept of Indigenous Australians negotiating ownership of the land. In any case, uh, Melbourne was established in 1837. It was very nearly called Batmania. What a missed opportunity that was. And people flocked to the new settlement to take advantage of its prime farming land. Victoria became a separate colony from New South Wales in 1851. And this was around the time that gold was discovered in them, their hills around Melbourne, which of course led to an explosion in population and prosperity. But that's another story. Just as the New South Wales governor had sent colonists to Van Diemen's land, so too did another one send them to what would become later Western Australia. In 1826, Governor Ralph Darling sent a military expedition off to King George Sound, principally to deter the French once again from trying to settle nearby. The area around King George Sound later became the town of Albany, uh, but it was after the 1829 expedition to the Swan River Uh, that we saw the establishment of what would go on to become the biggest city and the capital of WA, Perth. In 1827, the British claimed the rest of the Australian continent from the east to the west coast, bringing today's state of Western Australia into being. And in 1829, the Swan River Colony was established out on the west coast. And what's interesting about the Swan River Colony is is that it was designed to be Australia's first convict-free settlement. Convicts weren't to be sent there. It was just going to be free settlers supporting themselves and becoming self-sufficient. This plan did not work, however, and after two decades, hardly 5,000 people had moved there. Very, very small uh, number of people compared to many of the other growing colonies around, uh, around the continent. And so, because there weren't enough workers to maintain the colony, convicts did get sent to Perth after all, and, uh, and that was that. And uh, WA grew from there. South Australia was created in 1836 with a very similar intent to the Swan River Colony, a a province of free settlers supported by private finance, this time largely unfunded by, by the British altogether and no convicts. Adelaide, its capital, was laid out to be a beautiful city with fairly priced land packages designed to attract those wanting to move with their families from Europe. And it worked for a time. The nascent Australian colonial government even granted land rights to Indigenous Australians. But again, for a time, because those land rights were later revoked and the colony became a victim of its own success in the 1840s, when economic depression meant that a surplus of wheat, the surplus of wheat that it had produced, went unsold and drove this colony nearly bankrupt. The British had to step in, they took control of the colony, they helped it recover, and they oversaw its continued expansion. And years later, South Australia became a self-governing colony in 1856. Um, I've got a couple of South Australia facts for you, which are quite interesting. Um, The area now known as the Northern Territory was once part of South Australia from 1863 until a decade after Federation, uh, when it became a federal territory uh, in 1911, along with the uh, the Australian Capital Territory, where you find Canberra. Um, and the Northern Territory, if you look on a map, it sits directly above South Australia. And so you think, well, that makes sense. South Australia, southern part, Northern Territory, northern part, sure. But for a while, it wasn't known as the Northern Territory. It was known as South Australia. South Australia also included a region that would later go on to be known as the Northern Territory. So figure that one out. And on top of this... 
the Northern Territory is not the northernmost part of Australia. And South Australia isn't Australia's southernmost state. It's not even the second southernmost state in Australia. In fact, it barely makes it into the top half of Australia's southernmost states. Um, the, the other fact, and this is one that Australians can actually be a little more proud of, um, it was one of the first places on earth where, where property-owning women were allowed to vote in 1861. Famously, New Zealand was the first place to offer universal suffrage to women in 1893. But South Australia wasn't far behind. They expanded the vote to all women in 1894. And in 1895, South Australian women became the first in history to run for public office. So that is something that Australia can be proud of when it comes to its history. Anyway, Queensland was first colonised in 1824 with the establishment of the Moreton Bay Penal Settlement in what would later become the state capital, Brisbane. Convicts were sent there until 1842, after which it was opened up to free settlers, settlers that came into regular and heated conflict with Indigenous Australians as the colony expanded. Queensland separated from New South Wales in 1859, but the overwhelming majority of the colony was still largely ungoverned in a real sense by the British colonial government. Indigenous Australians fought tooth and nail to defend their ancestral homelands as, as settlers continued to encroach on their territory. They fought to defend the land that countless generations of Indigenous, of indigenous Australians had lived on. So that... Briefly is the story of how the six Australian colonies were founded. These colonies would obviously, as I mentioned before, go on to become the states that Australia still has today. And uh, life was hard for the settlers that colonised Australia. Thousands of kilometres away from their homes, they had to work extremely hard to survive in a faraway land that could be at times quite hostile and inhospitable. And none of these settlers suffered more than, of course, the convicts sub subjected to horrific conditions, forced to undertake backbreaking work for years on end. Although, as I said, some did all right for themselves. They served their sentences or they were emancipated and after that were granted huge tracts of land to farm and, and became very wealthy as a result. Most convicts that were sent over to Australia were thieves, particularly repeat offenders, uh, and most of them came from the British Midlands. Many were literate, some were reasonably educated. And so a lot of convicts rose through the government ranks after being emancipated Principally because the British government, in, in the British colonial government over there, needed competent people to do skilled jobs. And so by 1821, convicts or former convicts owned two thirds of the, of the colonised land within Australia, although they were eventually outstripped by new free settlers and, and the eventual phasing out of the convict transportation system, which, end, which ended for good in 1868 after around 161,000 convicts were transported to Australia, and, and many Australians, myself included, have them as ancestors. The overwhelming majority of convicts were men. The split was around 85-15 uh, in favour of, of male convicts. And uh, so from the 1830s onwards, the British heavily promoted the migration of women and families to Australia in order to attempt to even out the disparity between men and women. And this worked. Broadly speaking, it worked. By 1841, around 41% of the settlers in Australia were women. Uh, in any case, look, the bottom line is this. From the standpoint of the British, the colonisation of Australia was a complete success. The colonies flourished, the British sphere of influence increased, and wealth poured into the empire, particularly after the Victorian gold rush. 
Australia was further explored and, and, and charted in detail with undertakings like the, the Burke and Wills expedition, episode 37, get across it. Uh, and then in the back half of the 19th century, a national identity amongst the European settlers of Australia began to emerge, which ultimately led to the federation of the six states and the creation of the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901, the same nation that I live in today over a century later. So that's all well and good. We can all give ourselves a big pat on the back. We came over here, tamed this savage land, made it our own and turned it into one of the safest, happiest, most prosperous and livable nations on earth. But we white Australians are all too ready to forget the other side of our history. As Indigenous activists so rightly put it, white Australia has a black history. I said before that when it came to the settlers that travelled from Britain and Europe, no one suffered more than the convicts. And that's true. Of all the settlers, they definitely had the roughest go of things. But their suffering pales in comparison to what the colonisation of Australia inflicted upon the Indigenous people of this continent, a population that had lived here on their land, living by their rules for tens of thousands of years. The arrival of European settlers in Australia resulted in dispossession, violence, disease, kidnapping, murder, systemic removal of Indigenous children from their families in what amounts to, in my view and the view of many, an attempt at genocide. Indigenous Australians had been isolated from most of the rest of the human population for tens of thousands of years. As a result, they didn't have much in the way of resistance to many diseases that were common in other parts of the world. Just as smallpox devastated Indigenous populations within the Americas, its introduction to Australia killed Indigenous people en masse. And that's in addition to things like influenza, typhoid, measles, tuberculosis. It's estimated that disease killed three quarters of all of the Indigenous people living in my home state of Victoria before European settlers arrived and brought these diseases with them. And if it, was, if, if, if it, was, if it wasn't disease that killed them, perhaps the settlers themselves would. Indigenous Australians had lived on and managed their land for millennia, as we've covered, and now there are these new people here putting up fences, saying, no, you can't come into this area, this is mine. Indigenous people had never faced opposition to doing things like hunting animals on their land, but now if they killed the animals that the Europeans had brought with them and placed on cleared hunting grounds, they were branded poachers and often hunted down and killed by Europeans in retribution. Indigenous Australians resisted the continuing settling of their land, the clearing of forests and planting of crops and farming of animals. By, they, did, they resisted by doing things like burning crops and slaughtering livestock. And for this, they were killed in their thousands. Colonists banded together and murdered them as acts of revenge. A shameful number of mass killings and massacres further blight Australia's colonial history. In Van Diemen's land, in the Port Phillip district, in the Swan River colony, Indigenous people fought to protect themselves, their culture, their land, their way of life, and we killed them for it. We killed them in the tens of thousands for having the temerity to stand up for themselves. The Australian frontier wars, as they're known, they don't get talked about all that much over here, and I'm sure many Australians would be surprised to learn that over 100,000 Indigenous Australians were killed 
by British settlers in ongoing conflicts that spanned over 150 years as Australia was colonised. The death toll of the settlers, on the other hand, is estimated to be at around 2,500 people. And that is a high estimate. There are over 300 recorded incidents of settlers killing, hanging, shooting, poisoning, murdering, massacring Indigenous people, all for the crime of wanting to continue to exist as they had for tens of thousands of years. So the next time you roll your eyes at those bloody Aboriginals always having a whinge about this or that, can't they just get on with things? Remember this. They paid an unthinkable price in defending their lands from our incursions. And they defended their land with their blood, with their lives. They were massacred mercilessly. For every one European settler that was killed by Indigenous Australians while settling their land, 400 Indigenous people lost their lives. This is not a situation where you can look back and think, oh, well, yeah, nah, look, both sides were as bad as each other. Everyone was killing everyone. The whole thing is terrible. No, we murdered them while they tried to defend themselves, which they had every right to do. So they're not whinging. They're not refusing to get on with things. They are nursing centuries of injustice and spilt blood and lost lives and murder. Also, we could graze a few more sheep. It is disgraceful. And it wasn't just killing either. Indigenous people were kidnapped and civilised, forced to attend schools, had every inch of their lives controlled by the government and its regulations, sent off to live in reserves or missions, forced to assimilate. They couldn't work and earn money as white settlers could. They faced relentless abuse, even when attempting to ingratiate themselves into this new society. They were seen by settlers everywhere as racially inferior, stripped of their cultures and traditions, stripped of the ways of life that they had enjoyed for millennia. Indigenous Australians were pushed to the fringes of society in their native land, in a society that they did not opt into. Racial discrimination, rampant inequality, segregation, a total rejection of the legitimacy of Indigenous Australians as a people, all these things and more are part of the legacy of the colonisation of Australia, whether you like it or not. It is a wonder that even a scrap of Indigenous culture has survived. So determined the settlers were to eradicate their language, their traditions, their histories, their ways of life. And then, of course, there are the stolen generations, perhaps the most horrific crime committed by white Australia, the forced removal of Indigenous children from their families. In particular, and most disgustingly, in an attempt to breed Indigenous Australians out of existence, Mixed-race Indigenous children were targeted by these removals, taken away from Indigenous communities with the aim of 
assimilating them into white Australian society where they would go on to have children with white partners with each successive generation having less Indigenous makeup in its lineage. This was an attempted genocide. And as far as I'm concerned, far too many Australians, even today, ignore the crimes that this nation has committed against the people who got here first. I opened up this episode by saying that I'm proud to be an Australian, and that's true. I do believe that Australia is the greatest nation on earth. I feel very lucky to be Australian. I'm proud of much of what my country has achieved in the world. I'm proud of of, of much of what we represent today. However, as a white Australian, as the descendant of British and Irish settlers and convicts, when I think about the colonisation of Australia, when I think about Australia's origin story, the process by which this continent was settled and ultimately transformed into the nation that it is today, when I think about all of that, I am deeply, deeply ashamed of much of Australia's history. And I'm further ashamed by my fellow Australians who refuse to care about or even just acknowledge the horrific crimes that were committed against the original owners and inhabitants of the land that we all live on today. Stolen land. The Indigenous people of Australia have been put through hell thanks to European settlement. And so when they ask for Australia Day, a painful reminder of the horrific and tragic history that we forced upon them, when they ask for this day to be cast in a new light and to be seen for what it is, I think the least that we, as white Australians, can do is just listen to them. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the colonisation of Australia. And at the top of the show, I did say that we were going to leave the nasty bits in, and that's just what we've done. This is not a nice story. And I know that this episode is a departure from the regular tone of half-assed history. I want to tell you that it's not a permanent shift and that we will go back to plenty of silly nonsense in the future. But when, when I feel as strongly about an issue as I do about this, I want to use this tin pot history podcast in some small way to try to change hearts and minds and have them see the way that things really are, not that things are the way that they think they are or want them to be. So if you're an Australian and you don't know what all the fuss is when it comes to Australia Day, I urge you to think and research and more importantly than anything else, as I say, just listen. Anyway, that is that for this week of half Hour history some quick housekeeping stuff before we finish of course i know that some people are still having issues accessing the show i'm working on it i'm working on a new solution that i'm hoping will fix these problems the bad news is it may take uh, a number of weeks so uh, if you're having issues it's really important you get in touch go to halfhousehistory.net go to the contact form let me know the platform you're using if it's not working properly uh, and any other details you can provide that are going to help me out and i'm going to get this problem sorted hopefully within the next couple of weeks maybe a couple of months this will just be completely put to bed and that'll be that. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to support the show, you can, of course, do that via patreon.com uh, slash half history. You can go and sign up there or plenty of merch as well for you to grab if you feel like it. But 
The best thing to do really to support the show is to just tell other people about it. Let them know what's going on. If there is, if, if you know an Australian who has their head in the sand, buried in the sand when it comes to the same tired old arguments that come up every year this time of year, send this podcast to them and just invite them to have a listen and, 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 and to see what they think. Anyway, that is that. Uh, not closing the show with uh, a question posed on Reddit this week. I want to share with you instead a very important moment in Australian history, uh, which took place uh, within my lifetime, just uh, just 15 years ago when, and look, this has not solved the problems that Indigenous Australians faced, but certainly it was an important step towards the ongoing reconciliation pro- process. In 2008, then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd stood in Australian Parliament and offered an apology to Australia's Indigenous peoples, and I'd like to share that with you to end the show. Today we honour the Indigenous peoples of this land, the oldest continuing cultures in human history. We reflect on their past mistreatment. We reflect in particular on the mistreatment of those who were stolen generations, this blemished chapter in our national history. The time has now come for the nation to turn a new page. A new page in Australia's history by righting the wrongs of the past and so moving forward with confidence to the future. We apologise for the laws and policies of successive parliaments and governments that have inflicted profound grief, suffering and loss on these our fellow Australians. We apologise especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. To the mothers and the fathers, the brothers and the sisters, for the breaking up of families and communities, we say sorry. And for the indignity and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture, we say sorry. We, the Parliament of Australia, respectfully request that this apology be received in the spirit in which it is offered, as part of the healing of the nation. For the future, we take heart, resolving that this new page in the history of our great continent can now be written. We today take this first step by acknowledging the past and laying claim to a future that embraces all Australians. A future where this parliament resolves that the injustices of the past must never, never happen again. A future where we harness the determination of all Australians Indigenous and non-Indigenous, to close the gap that lies between us and life expectancy, educational achievement and economic opportunity. A future where we embrace the possibility of new solutions to enduring problems where old approaches have failed. A future based on mutual respect, mutual resolve and mutual responsibility. A future where all Australians whatever their origins, are truly equal partners with equal opportunities and with an equal stake 
in shaping the next chapter in the history of this great country, Australia.